Hi, good evening, and welcome to another and the latest episode of the Jewish People Policies Institute Inside Analysis of Israel's War Against Hamas. Lots happening here in Israel, and uh, I'm honored tonight to be spending the evening and our upcoming panel and discussion with two people, uh, Professor Yedija Stern, who is the president of JPPI, and Ambassador Dennis Ross, a longtime veteran uh, diplomat and member of various administrations in the United States. Uh, Dennis, Yedidia, thank you very much for joining. So we have a lot to talk about, and there's a lot obviously going on. As, as I'm sitting here waiting for it to begin, I just get the push notification of eight soldiers who have been seriously wounded over the last 24 hours in uh um, in some of the fighting inside the Gaza Strip. So lots of the, unfortunately, the fighting continues to be fierce and casualties uh, continue to mount, on, obviously, on both sides. But what, what I'd like to start with is the news that's happening as we speak. And Dennis, uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, is here on the ground in Tel Aviv meeting with the Prime Minister, met with the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. I mean, we don't obviously know yet what's come of those discussions, what we do know is that it seems that there is some increased tension between the Biden administration and Israel. We all heard President Biden's comments the other day uh, about the need for a different government, kind of insinuating that there's a need for a different government in Israel. We've been we're already intimately familiar with the calls by different members of the administration, Secretary Blinken, Vice President Harris, Secretary of Defense uh, Austin, who's also scheduled to come here in a couple of days to minimize civilian casualties in Gaza. So that's been kind of the long run theme, but now is this call for a regime change almost, or at least a new government in Israel. And, you know, the, the window of how much longer does Israel have is obviously the big question that everyone wonders. And when is Biden going to slam the brakes for Israel and say, guys, it's enough, wrap it up. What are your thoughts on that? Well, look, thanks for having me and uh, a complicated set of questions, to be sure. I think we have to start with a very important reality. President Biden has obviously stood by Israel's side in a way that uh, is quite remarkable because he's withstanding pressure internationally, he's withstanding pressure from the region, even from a good chunk of his own political base, he's withstood pressure. And it's based on a strategic objective, which is the same one that Israel has, which is Israel should not be asked to live in a situation where Hamas is next door and in control of the area next door. We shouldn't lose sight of that's still the fundamental strategic objective that Biden has embraced. There has been some dissonance, I think, from two standpoints. You touched on one, which is you know, the way to buy time and space to achieve the strategic objective is to do enough in the humanitarian area on the one hand uh, and on the other to try to minimize the civilian casualties, which is really obviously very difficult given the way Hamas embeds itself uh, in highly dense populated areas and it embeds itself in the most sensitive areas, under hospitals, under schools, uh, in mosques, and so forth. So there's a that's been one area where the U.S. is, I think, put a premium on sort of emphasizing the need to do that because it's one of the ways it tries to, to buy Israel more time and space to deal with a strategic objective. Now, there's a corollary to this, and it's the day after issue. Right. Uh, but it's not just the day after issue. It's also what's going on in the West Bank. Uh, there has been the actions of extremist settlers who 
were uh, in a number of cases killed Palestinians. Uh, and so there's that's been one issue, but there's a related one. You know, there's a clearly a security forces intelligence here and and some within the government uh, support the idea of allowing Palestinian workers to come back in because as the situation gets more desperate in the West Bank, the potential for an explosion there is quite high. And so far, the finance minister has blocked this along with uh, the minister of national security. So Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. Right, have blocked this. And I think what you're seeing when you, what you heard from the president, and again, he tends to be extremely candid when he's speaking in these private fundraising settings. The problem is these private fundraising settings usually involve several hundred people. And so, not it may so well be, <laughs> it's not so private. And so what is said there tends to come out, but he tends to be extremely candid. So I think one of the reasons that that emerged was because he understands that there's that Smotrich and Ben Gavir have effectively blocked the ability to allow passing workers to come back in, which is one of the, the ways to ensure that things don't become so desperate in the West Bank, you don't open up, open up a front there. I think what you were hearing from the president was this government will find it very difficult to do anything in the day after. Uh, and of course, the day after, the day after, I, I have just come from, uh, from being in the UAE. A month ago, I was in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I find, on the one hand, something that is new and different, a readiness on their part to invest more uh, in transforming the Palestinian Authority uh, and in investing in what could be uh, a new reality in Gaza. But they want it part of a, a whole where there's also some kind of political destination or horizon. And that's what, what uh, Secretary Blinken has been hearing, certainly what the president has been hearing. Uh, and as he hears that, even as he understands the trauma that has affected Israel and the body politic, he also understands that you, Israel is going to have to, it, it needs to be in a position where it can also be responsive to what our uh, initiatives, what look to be initiatives from the Arab side that we haven't seen before, and that the president himself sees as having the, the value of being able to go back and even pursuing again the idea of normalization with Saudi Arabia. So he's He's looking at the potential to take what has been an absolute catastrophe and see, is there a way to create a better reality for the future? And he wants to be sure, and that's what I think came out, he wants to be sure you have an Israeli government that's in sort of grasped that nettle uh, and can engage in a way that creates some possibility. Uh, that's what I think we were hearing from the president. You know, Yadidia, the... When you think about the this potential tension that exists, um, it doesn't happen necessarily in a vacuum, right? Netanyahu, who is also thinking about the day after, not just the day after in Gaza, but also the day after politically for himself and what will happen here in Israel, to some people might actually have a benefit from having a clash with the president because what he, his, his day after, and we're already starting to see the, the beginnings of such a campaign, is I am the one who will stand up to the president and prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state, right? So he is seems to be staking that out as the hill that so-called metaphorically will die on. And what he'll say if and when there are elections after the war is that uh, Benny Gantz, Naftali Bennett, Yossi Cohen, whoever, Yair Lapid, whoever it might be, they will succumb to American presidential pressure. I am strong. 
So he, he actually might benefit from this tension to an extent. Yeah, first of all, it's important to notice that all three levels of disagreement that uh, Dennis mentioned, meaning the, the way we fight, the duration of the war, and what will happen afterwards, that's are the three issues. On all three accounts, most Israelis do not agree with uh, the administration. So it's not Netanyahu or his self-interest. It's a genuine uh, approach of, um, I think, vast majorities of Israel Israelis. Think about what happened yesterday. We had a, a tough day here in Israel when nine soldiers, including uh, some officers, died in combat. Many Israelis say that's because we do not function as we used to function in the beginning. In the beginning, we used to use the Air Force first, et cetera, et cetera, and now we are more careful because we want to consider the way we treat it and the number of casualties on the Palestinian side is raising, and, uh, and therefore we are more careful, more careful meaning our kids are dying. So Israelis do feel that we do not have necessarily act in the way that uh, Biden, with all due respect, wants us to act. Also with regard to the duration of, of the war, Israelis uh, will not accept, I think the majority, will not accept uh, any end of the war before we feel that we actually achieve the main goal of, uh, um, I mean, devastating the Hamas. And uh, regarding after the war, when Biden is talking about the PA, I mean, Israelis do not believe the PA is, is, is a reality. It's a, a corrupt and it's imagination, basically. Only 7% of the Palestinians support right now. Uh, the PA. So how can we agree that they will take over Gaza and obviously Hamas will take over later? So I want to stress, it's not Bibi. It's Israel's. However, to the question, Yaakov, yes, Bibi wants to buy time. And from his point of view, rightfully so. Why is it so? As we know, because of the war, as a, as a result of the war, uh, Israelis move to the right. However, the political ramification of this change of ideology of some of us did not happen yet. They vote for Gantz, but they actually, many of them, would love to vote for a right-winger, not like Gantz, but somebody that they can trust with the right-winger. And Netanyahu hopes that with time, ideology will, reflect, will be reflected in the political um, decision that people will make, and for this he needs time. However, if Hopefully not. But if some of us, people outside of Israel and in Israel, will believe that the war is being prolonged because of the political reason of, of Netanyahu, this will be obviously against the interests of everybody. It will start a big thing over, the, over here. Therefore, we have to make some kind of a decision of an end. If we say the end of the war, there's no definition for that. IDF is saying the war might take even a year. We are not going to wait a year till we discuss politics here in Israel and decide who will be our next leader. Therefore, there should be some kind of serious thinking about what might be the end of the major part of the war, which will start up the discussion about the future of the government of the status of Israel. If you ask me, I have no um, crystal ball, but I would assume that it will happen within a month, a month and a half. And uh, hopefully by then, Hanunes and these areas will be cleared in a major way, not all the details, but major way. And then Israelis will have to go back and to, to the homes and think who should be our leader. 
The uh, yeah, just two two interesting things I was thinking about. Um, one is what, what what might be the trigger for us to start that discussion, or what will be the and you're talking about the the change from the high intensity conflict to the low intensity conflict. So we're still in the high intensity, low intensity is when we pull out most of our troops there to go in, go out, kind of surgical operations. But the 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 spark for the political discussion could be Benny Gantz himself when he makes the decision, I'm pulling out of the government because I no longer have to be here. And that could be the trigger that kind of sets off that conversation. Um, Dennis, you know, so Yadidia told us a month to a month and a half of the high intensity conflict, right? It, does Israel have that? I, I, I just saw the headline by Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, who was telling Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, that it will take more than several months to continue to destroy Hamas. Now, does that mean a continuation of this level of, of engagement? That could be a discussion. But how much time do you estimate that Israel has? And sorry to put you on the spot, but, you know, no, well, you, no, no, this is crystal ball. Right. So. Look, I, I think the question is, is, is an appropriate one, because obviously the U.S. is feeling pressure. But they, again, there's this kind of interesting duality because the U.S. has not changed its position that in the end, Hamas cannot be controlling Gaza. So the idea that Israel has a finite period of time is both right, but if it looks like they haven't yet put themselves in a position or they haven't defeated Hamas to the point where it's lost its organizational coherence, the command and control has basically been gone. They've destroyed the vast bulk of these 24 battalions so that the, the military coherence has disappeared. You, you may have individual fighters, but they no longer have any leaders. So they're disconnected. When you reach that point, I think that's the critical question. Now, if you when I'm, I'm here and I'm talking to a lot of people here, as you might imagine, and when I pose these questions, how long does it take to get to that point? I don't get a clear answer. It feels like you're, it feels like to me, it's three or four weeks, maybe three to six weeks. I think if it's three to six weeks, the administration is going to say, get the job done. It still wants to do it in a way that, you know, try to minimize casually, make sure there's more humanitarian assistance going in. Uh, but I think Israel probably has that time, unless you have some major calamity. Right. I mean, we've seen before, this is not the first time we've been in conflicts where the wrong target gets hit, a huge number of civilians gets killed, and suddenly it changes the the whole context. But I would say three to six weeks. I just want to, I want to add one point on what Yadidi was saying. Yadidi was describing what the Israeli public feels, and I understand that. Uh, no one, including the administration, is saying the PA should take over Gaza tomorrow. In fact, what the administration is saying, I'd like them to change the word. They say revitalize. It's not revitalize. The PA has to be completely transformed. It needs an entirely different leadership where at, at most Abu Mazen is a kind of figurehead. Uh, and, and it probably takes two years for that to be the case. Uh, to remake it in a way, in the meantime, you need some kind of interim administration within Gaza. Israel doesn't want to stay. It doesn't want to be responsible for governing in Gaza. And so you need some kind of interim administration. Being able to sort that out in a way that is consistent with the with the Israeli view that we may have a low intensity reality where we can go in and out, it'll be hard to square that with getting an, an interim administration that could include foreign forces in Gaza. So there's a challenge. You know, I hear Prime Minister Netanyahu say, no PA. I haven't heard him say, 
uh, okay, we're prepared to stay forever. I haven't heard him say who should be there. Uh, and at some point, I think that's a fair question. It's also a fair question to say when there's no Palestinian state, it's fair to say, okay, so what will there be? Uh, these are questions that, frankly, at this point, I think in the near term, the legitimate question is how will you know when you've achieved the, as you said, the enough destruction of Hamas that they've lost control, number one, and they're too weak to resist or prevent an outside administration from coming in. Right. That, I think, is a, is a critical question. Having the second part of the conversation, what should our relationship with the Palestinians be? It's too soon to have that conversation, but that is a conversation and debate that needs to take place at some point here. The uh, and by the way, I mean Netanyahu is the master at saying what he doesn't want, rarely saying what he does want. So you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that necessarily to change so quickly. Uh, Yadidia, I, I, and also Dennis, I do want to ask both of you about the how you both read the poll that did come out from the Palestine, from from the Palestinian territories. Because when when you see how, for example, let me just give some of the highlights. When you see, for example, that uh, support for the for Hamas in the West Bank, which is where the PA and Fatah are mostly uh, in charge, and you see it's gone up from twelve percent in September to forty four percent in 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 the West in in just now, forty two percent in Gaza back the group. You see that seventy two percent back what happened on October seventh. These are numbers, Yadidia, right? That I would think that the Israeli will say to himself or herself. These are not people we can work with. And and when Americans talk to us about keeping the two-state solution alive, like I read a piece today on the Atlantic website by Dan Kurtzer, a former ambassador here, who's talking about the the grand plan that, of course, needs to keep the two-state solution. Israelis look at that and they say, I mean, I don't want to be crass, but what's he smoking? I mean, you know, who's talking about a two-state solution? Well, this is really, really devastating to read this. If this is true, if this survey is describing reality, it's not two perspectives, Israeli one and Palestinian one, or maybe American one on, on the same reality. It's different reality whatsoever. We're watching two different things all together. When you ask yourself, is it true? Is it true that 72% of the Palestinians say that the Hamas attack on us on the 7th of October was correct. If this is true, what are we supposed to think? What are we going to do with this kind of information if this is true? How can Israelis who want to live can do anything in the future with this kind of uh, of people? The way, and I'm not trying ringer, but I, I read the numbers and there's nobody to talk to. It's more than that. The, the expectations about uh, what will happen later are totally different. Most of the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank believe that the Hamas will win, will come victorious by the end of this thing. It's unbelievable to us as Israelis because we think just the opposite. Right. So we're not looking at the same reality in a way. If you think about um, the issue of uh, support for Hamas, which tripled, as you said, And it's almost half of the Palestinians supporting Hamas as a political organization. When we Israelis call them Nazis, I personally do not use the term Nazis because I think we should make the difference, but many Israelis do. So when our neighbors, a few miles from where I live, 
think that what many of us think are Nazis, if they think that they should be the political organization that half of them support, the way to talk to each other is almost blocked. So we're facing something which is very serious and uh, uh, ramifications to be to be discovered in the future. One caveat though, we are in the midst of an earth, earthquake, all of us. And maybe the Palestinians are part of this earthquake and this part of heroism or, or their way to respond to what they feel that right now we are destroying Hamas, so they support it because they're under attack. So we need time for that. But if this is describing what Palestinians think, we are in big trouble. But I would so say, please, can I just take a comment on this? So, yeah. One, you're in the middle of a, of a war where there's, you know, there, the, the pain they're feeling is high, but think about the reality that they think that Hamas is going to win. Now, when Hamas loses, that has an effect. It's one thing if they say, see, Hamas, Hamas succeeded in what it did, then it then basically the Hamas way works. But if Hamas, having done this absolutely horrible thing, also then in, instead of being able to claim great victory, is loses power, loses control, that has an effect across the Middle East in a positive way. It will also have for all those Palestinians who are saying we think they're going to win, and then they lose, that will affect the psychology as well. Uh, I think you put your finger on something, Yadidia, drawing too many conclusions from the the mood in the middle of a war. Uh, I think it's a snapshot and it reflects anger uh, and it reflects a sense of, you know, we have to respond somehow to what we see is taking place. But if, you know, the context changes in terms of Hamas actually having lost, I think we're in a very different place with Palestinians as well. But I want to make this other point. Look, one of the things that is required of the Palestinians, they will have to prove to Israelis that Hamas is not the Palestinians. I say this all the time. But the truth is, if the Palestinians don't demonstrate that they condemn Hamas, what Hamas did is wrong, it doesn't represent them, they are not Hamas, it's very difficult to change anything. It's a, you know... I, just as I will say to people who, you know, they'll say something that I consider to be a complete contradiction. How can you say ceasefire in two states? If you say ceasefire, Hamas wins. If Hamas wins, there's no two states, not because of Israel, but because of Hamas. So there's a whole process of thinking through what all this means that is not taking place yet. It's impossible for it to take place here now because you're still in the midst of this and you can't even begin to confront it until, look, as you said, Yaakov, until at least the most intense phase of the fighting is over, and at least the image that Hamas is no longer in control has been established. Then we're in a different place. You know, you're also what you're also touching upon is is when you look when you look at these polls, and I, they're very obviously very disturbing. But for the average Palestinian who looks at what's happening in the region and sees who brings results, right? Now, even though there's devastation now in Gaza, but Hamas gets results. Who get who gets prisoners released? It's not Abu Mazen. It's Hamas, right. and right. and you know how much the prisoners play a role. So, I, I think that maybe you are. Let's hope you're right. That if Israel does achieve its goal, it does topple Hamas. It does degrade its capabilities. Hopefully, takes out its leadership, which I don't see a way we don't. Then, um, 
that would change that that mood for for the Palestinians because that would no longer be the option that it was until now. I, I want to just shift gears for a moment and and, and take a, a look at something else uh, with the time that we have left. You know, Yadidia, this past week, I was thinking the other day on Tuesday when we had that the devastating news that you mentioned of that that I think it was ten soldiers in the end who were killed that day, nine in that incident uh, in the north or in Sajaia, mostly Golani soldiers. Again, Golani is is. I mean, just so people understand for a moment, 13th Battalion of Golani, 41 soldiers killed on October 7th because they were the ones deployed along the border. A number of them kidnapped, still being held by, by, by Hamas in Gaza. They regroup. They bring back soldiers. They bring back commanders. The deputy battalion commander killed and murdered uh, that day among company commanders. They pull people back from studies and whatever, rebuild the battalion. They go to fight. And now the battalion commander killed, uh, Tomer Greenberg, alongside uh, several uh, uh, other company commanders, what we call Mempeim in Hebrew, and, and a number of soldiers. And just thinking of Golani's storied history, it reminded me of Binge Bell, the famous battle in 2006 when they lost, uh, uh, I think it was eight, nine soldiers in that famous battle. That was the 51st Battalion. But what I feel we're seeing in this war, to a large extent, is commanders at the front and just to, to sharpen the question, you've had five colonels who have lost their lives in the war. Uh, three of them in on October 7th, Nahal Brigade Commander, the Rifaim Unit Commander, and um, the Southern Brigade of the Gaza Division, Asaf Hamami, whose body was then taken to Gaza. You had the day later, another retired colonel who drove down south, uh, Ilan Bar, to try to save people. He was killed. And then the other day, you had uh, Ben Bassat, also a retired colonel, who goes into Gaza to fight. You've had two battalion commanders, Tomer Greenberg and uh, Chabaka, the uh, Druze tank commander from the 188th Brigade. It, 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 to me, it feels, and I'm curious what you think, Yadidia, that we have the commanders at the front, unlike maybe previous wars. Sorry to go on for such a long question, but I think it's important to mention and list who these people are to a large extent. So it's a change in 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 the military culture, but also the loss, right, of such so many higher ranking officers. That's not something we see. Yeah. You know, in the early days of IDF, in the early 50s, uh, IDF was very, very weak. And it wasn't clear that the IDF can hold. And a few of the then commanders of IDF, later on it was uh, Moshe Dayan, and later on it was uh, Arik Sharon, they established the notion of Akharai, follow me. Meaning, the the way we anticipate, the way we wish a commander at IDF will will function when there's a combat, he'll be the first one to jump, jump into fire. Now, what seems to be failure yesterday was an, an amazing, an amazing example of this specific principle in another one. The other one, also from the 50s, we do not leave anybody behind. When IDF is fighting, we do not leave anybody behind. What happened in Sajaia yesterday? They thought that somebody was caught, one of the Israeli soldiers was caught, so we don't leave anybody behind. So we have to jump into what happened to be a trap. Yeah. So who is jumping? First of all, the commanders. 
I want to say that obviously there is a loss of, of expertise of people who are more talented and, um, and it looks like stupid. Why do you put your best people in the front? You may think maybe you, you, you need to be cold blooded to see the picture, to stay behind. No, the main problem in combat is the fear. It's human. The way Israelis are fighting the fear in combat is by a ex personal ex example, by the commanders, when soldiers, or young people usually, see somebody who's older by two, three, or 15 years, and they respect him. He's a commander. When he jumps into fire, everybody jumps into fire. This gives strength to, to the whole uh, striving for contact. Is an amazing motivation for the whole unit to act, and that's what we do. This is an Israeli ethos with many, many examples, unfortunately. Uh, think about Yoni Netanyahu. We're talking about Netanyahu. Think about Yoni Netanyahu in Antebbe. He was the head of Sayeret Matkal, and he yeah. killed in combat. So that's how we act, and uh, Israelis are very proud of it. This is one of the Israeli ethos that we would like uh, to, to, to preserve and to go on. And every Israeli kid, when they go to the army, they know it. I am behind my commander, and he's before me. It's something special and unique about this country. I mean, just one other interesting element of, unfortunately, the, the mounting number of casualties is about 50% being reservists, right? People who just pick up and go. Father, this morning when we heard the news of the latest uh, one soldier who fell, a father of six, right? Well, I mean, what's he doing in Gaza? <laughs> a father of six, you could say, but he's there because he feels... He has to fight, even though now there are six new orphans, unfortunately. Dennis, I, I, I want to wrap up with you. And um, you're in Israel. Uh, you, you know, I think you once told me you've been here a thousand times. You don't, you've lost track yeah. of how many times you've come. Yeah. But but I think this is probably a more emotional visit for you uh, during this time of war for the country. And I can imagine that you're seeing an Israel that might be changing and is and is looking a little different. And I'm curious what that feels like on, on a more emotional side of of being here at this time. And 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 what what have you seen that's or what have you what are you learning that might be a little different about the state yeah. of Israel today? Uh, you know, it's in some ways even emotionally, it's hard to answer because I do feel it. Um, I, I have this sense that. Uh, Israel after October 7th is not the same country that it was before October 7th. Uh, you you get the sense, intellectually I could understand it, but emotionally it feels different when I see it and I talk to people here. Uh, there is this sense of pervasive sadness uh, under a veneer of normality. Uh, and, you know, I've already been to a, to a shiva uh, of you know, a young 25-year-old soldier who, who died in Gaza. Uh, and to think that this is being revisited day, every day, uh, uh, it's heart-wrenching and I feel it. Uh, I see it in the people I talk to. Uh, you can't escape it. Uh, and you also understand it's a strategic imperative. This really is an example of a war that Israel has no choice but to fight precisely because what Hamas represents is such a fundamental threat to Israel. And uh, there's an Iranian strategy that has never been about dropping a nuclear bomb on Israel. It's about making life so unlivable by using Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, and others, the Houthis, 
the the you know they call it the axis of resistance. I call it the axis of misery. Uh, they have to see that that fails. Right. Hamas has to be seen as having been defeated because it'll have an effect on Hezbollah. It'll have an effect on the Iranians. It has an effect on everyone else. So it is a. I, I you ask the question. I feel emotionally. I I find it hard to even say it, uh, even to talk about it. But I think we have to recognize what it, what's at stake, and it's not just at stake for Israel. It's one of the things I'm trying to, with you know, with the Biden administration. One of the things I'm trying to say is, the president is right to adopt the position that Hamas cannot be ruling Gaza when this is over, because it has implications not just for Israel but for the region as a whole. And if that requires us to withstand the pressures that we've been withstanding, so be it. I want to thank you uh, both, Dennis Ross, Yadidu Stern, and I want to wish all of our viewers and listeners who are with us this evening a, a final happy Hanukkah. Tonight is the eighth night of uh, lighting the menorah. And um, let us hope that when we have eight candles and the whole Hanukkah, the whole menorah is lit, that will really send some light and strength to our soldiers who are risking their lives. And of course, prayers for the wounded and for the hostages as always. So thank you both very much. Chag Sameach and of course Shabbat Shalom to everyone. We will be back on Monday with another episode of JPPI's Inside Analysis of the War. Thank you very much.